Salesforce is a platform with a large number of developers, ISVs, and companies built on top of it. There's a thriving ecosystem of applications built and managed around Salesforce, leading to an important set of relationships and integration points between Salesforce and the other entities involved with the company. Kevin Poorman works at Salesforce as a developer evangelist, helping to strengthen the relationships in the Salesforce ecosystem. Kevin joins the show to talk about Salesforce and the applications that connect to it. Full disclosure, Salesforce is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Kevin Poorman, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Most people who interact with Salesforce don't think of it as a developer ecosystem. They think of it as a CRM tool. But there is a thriving ecosystem of developers who build things around Salesforce. Tell me a little bit about the developer ecosystem. Developer ecosystem for Salesforce is pretty vast. I've seen everything from purely business apps being created to there was just a, I just read a blog post a few days ago about a guy and a team that created a, a, a game on the Salesforce platform. So you can literally go in just about any direction you want. We, the developer evangelist team at Salesforce, have a group of sample apps that we try to use to demonstrate all the different things you can do. But the ecosystem is so broad that even those sample apps don't fully cover everything. Well, tell me a little bit more about what kinds of people are building applications. You know, so it's it's mostly businesses because Salesforce is a, a platform for you know enterprise level software development. You don't find a lot of people who are you know oh I'm going to sit down on Saturday and and write an app just for the fun of it. It's not like a more open source platform like Node or or Ruby or something like that where you know you have an itch you can scratch it. You can still scratch itches with the Salesforce ecosystem, but it's to say that you're, you know, because of the uh, the the upfront cost to to get it set up, then you're kind of looking at mostly, you know, businesses who are doing this. And I call that the upfront setup cost, but there is, you can go and sign up for a free org and start developing uh, however you'd like. But again, if you want to get that into production, as it were, then you're going to need to be a Salesforce licensed subscriber. What kind of SDKs are there for plugging into Salesforce? Oh, that's a great question. We have a number of SDKs. Most of them revolve around dealing with third-party systems. So we have SDKs that allow you to, for instance, build mobile apps. Those SDKs wrap our REST APIs and authentication and help you write uh, mobile apps that are a joy to create, much less painful than making raw REST callouts. And we also have APIs for um, ingesting all sorts of uh, data. So if you want to drop a record into Salesforce, we can do that with the REST API. If you want to drop in 50,000 records, we can do that with the bulk API. We've got all sorts of variations on, on a theme there. We've got something called the composite API that allows you to create multiple object records all related to one another in a single call. So for instance, if you had an address book application, you could create a office location record and the record contact information for the three people who work in that office location all in one call. We also have a number of APIs, or I guess SDKs is probably the better word for this, where they are toolkits for you to integrate into your own, whatever your application is built in. So for instance, my first start with Salesforce uh, way back over 10 years ago was I was working at a, a company and we had a 
an email application that we were building and we created an integration into Salesforce so that when people signed up for a free trial, they got created as a lead. When they converted and started becoming a paying customer, they became an account. Any support calls were tied in there. That sort of work. Tell me about the most complex application you've seen built upon Salesforce. So as it turns out, selling billboards is incredibly complicated. And I never would have imagined this, but I helped write an app that was specifically for a company that uh, marketed and sold billboards and all the variations thereon. So you've got billboards and bus wraps and bus station signs and basically outdoor advertising in general. We also had this thing called a spectacle and a spectacle was like you could you could buy time on every surface in Times Square for a spectacle. But the process of selling that was way more complicated than I ever realized because every bit of outdoor advertising space has demographics that go with it. So there's a an industry firm that goes out and says, "Okay, here is an outdoor advertising space and we're going to we're going to, you know, write down everybody who walks by it." So we can say, you know, we are looking for women who are between the height of five foot and six foot who see this billboard every day. And then they turn around and say, okay, if you want to target uh, women who are five foot five, you want to talk to these, you want to buy these three billboards. And so the demographics and the number of billboards just becomes a vast sea of information. So one of the one of the most complex applications that I ever had the, the joy of working on was an application to, you know, help people figure out which billboards to target when building a marketing plan for um, a client. So they'd get a client in and the client would say, well, I'm about to release a new a new product and my target market is uh, teenage drivers who are going off to college with their car, to come up with an example. And we would turn around and we would help the sales agents figure out, okay, the demographics that apply here are age-related, so they want looking for 17 and 18-year-olds, maybe 19-year-olds, who have cars, so probably billboards along you know interstates. And then we would have, they would come up and it would uh, do a very complex search to find the billboards that fit those demographics and we would turn around and then they could uh, graphically drag and drop those billboards into a marketing plan. So that system relied on, you know, external connections to that industry uh, company that talked about that did the, uh, the demographics. It relied on vast amounts of data within Salesforce and it relied on uh, a, a very complex user interface to make it all usable. And that application, what would be the process for building it? So the first thing we did is we we looked at the data model. And some of the data models we had control over, and some of the data models we had no control over. We couldn't, for instance, change the data that we could get from the uh, industry analyst firm. We, only, we could only access it. Um, we didn't truly control it. But at the same time, we controlled all of the marketing plan information. We controlled the bits about the, the metadata about the individual outdoor advertising spaces. And we controlled the information about the actual like clients and marketing plans and how they chose the demographics, all that sort of information. So we started off looking at our data model and we built out as best a data model as we could uh, to start building. 
once we started doing that, we worked on um, the the bits of our code that would be required to aggregate that data and pull it together and then look at what we needed to do to make sure that it was fast and efficient because we were dealing with so much information. We started off with fairly fairly naive queries, you know, on the order of show me everything from Arizona. And then we had to start narrowing that down and becoming more and more specific. So we got to the point where we had a query set that we could ask when somebody plugged in demographic data, we could turn around and say, okay, this is how we look for that information in this vast sea of things. So a lot of it, we started off on the data side of things. How do we do this? How do we interact with this data in an efficient manner? And once we built that, then we spent a lot of time with the clients understanding how they wanted to use it, how they were currently doing this process of selling you know, outdoor advertising. And we worked with them to come up with a, a user interface, or at least the idea of a user interface that they could understand and intuitively use. And then the, the bulk of it was building that user interface. Was that application built in-house or was it built by some consultancy? A little bit of both. There were definitely in-house developers. I was, for lack of a better term, the architect on the project at the time, and I did work for a, a consultancy at the time. Interesting. Tell me more about the ecosystem of software vendors and software developers around the Salesforce world. So in the Salesforce world, we have ISVs, independent software vendors, and they build products and they put them up for sale in the Salesforce app exchange. And in order to get into the app exchange, there's a lot of work they have to do in terms of passing a security audit, all that sort of stuff. If you imagine uh, what it's like to get an iOS app approved in the app store, it's it's like that, but under a, a much more detailed microscope. There's a lot of, of work that goes into the security review. And once Salesforce signs off on that, then it goes into the app exchange. And the app exchange is a, a wonderful uh, little app store, for lack of a better term, that allows you to go and say, okay, I'm looking for an app that will help me do X, Y, and Z. And say you want an app to do scheduling. You want to be able to set up a way for your customers to directly schedule appointments with some of your workers. You can look for the, in, the, in the app exchange for an app like that, and then click a button and install it. Now, th those are how the ISVs work. Now, you also have in-house developers. Uh, so if you are a Salesforce client and a customer and you want to build on top of the platform, whether that's because you want to build in some automation, say you want to automatically update contact information whenever the accounts that they belong to has a, a new address, right? You can, you can automate that kind of work. You can build that out in, in a couple of different ways. We have what we call uh, low-code tools, and those tools are uh, graphical in nature. So you're picking fields, you're dragging and dropping things into place. You are generally interacting with, it's not training wheels per se, but it is a way of helping you guide your logic and decision-making in a way that makes it m much easier to build out automations and things like that with Salesforce. And then we also have the, the code interface. So Salesforce has, uh, as a platform has a, uh, a domain-specific language, as it were, called Apex. And it's very uh, Java-esque. It's not Java, but it's Java-esque in its syntax. If you, uh, if you write C or one of the C family of languages, you'll probably be pretty familiar with the, the 
syntax of Apex. And then we also, for our UI layer, we have a JavaScript framework we call Lightning Web Components. And Lightning Web Components help you build uh, reusable components, as the name implies, to build out your UI that interacts with that code in the back end in Apex. So as an internal developer, you might get a story or a request for you to automate some data. And you could say, OK, I'm going to automate that but I don't really need to write code for it. I can do that in Process Builder or Flow, which are our low-code tools. And you could turn around and say, okay, no, I'm going to, you know, our company standard, because we have so much of this automation going on is to use Apex, I can write that in Apex as well. And then you have the sort of the third group of people, so not in-house developers, not ISVs. These are the consultancy groups and consultancies have their own developers who interact and work with end customers orgs as well you mentioned a variety of different ways of interfacing with the salesforce data so you've got these low code tools you've got apis you've got sdks what's the process of the feedback loop between the developer ecosystem and salesforce how does salesforce render new ways of interfacing with salesforce data it's an interesting question. Uh, let me take a stab at answering it. There is a. It's actually really surprising to me. When I first started doing Salesforce work, I was surprised at the sort of democratic way in which I could talk to the developers at Salesforce who were building the products. And there's a number of ways that, that happens. There are certain people at Salesforce who are sort of well-known in the ecosystem and have very clearly defined developer-related roles within Salesforce. And whether that's a developer evangelist or a product manager, almost all of them that I can think of are freely available on Twitter. So I take Twitter questions, comments, snide remarks all the time. And I know a lot of other Salesforce employees do as well. So I think that's partly that's a thing, unique thing about our our ecosystem. The other one that I, I want to call out there is we have a number of places where people can go and ask questions and or leave feedback. The two big ones are our Trailblazer forums, which are forums, obviously, but then we have a, a developer section there and people can ask questions, post code, ask how what did I do this or why isn't this working, that sort of thing. But the other one is something we call you know, now that I go to talk about it, the name is currently escaping me. It's a system we have where we can put up and give our end users the option to prior help prioritize things. They don't get the final say in prioritizing things because there might be like cross-team dependencies that require X before Y, but they get the ability to go in and say, okay, this feature is really important to me and vote on that feature. And that plays a big part in our product roadmaps. Now, we also have other third-party ecosystem players like Stack Exchange that have a really vibrant community built around them for Salesforce. But an, and even inside those third-party systems, we also have you know our, our product managers, our uh, developer evangelists. We're always in there answering questions, talking about things, you know, raising up issues. We just had one the other day where somebody discovered something that they were trying to do that they thought they could do really easily, only to find out that enums didn't work the way they thought they did. And so we've been having uh, a discussion with that developer. You know, what's your use case? How are you trying to do this? You know, is this a, I mean, is this a one in a million use case, or is this something that would be truly useful? And then bringing that up to the product owners and the product managers. Tell me more about how regularly you are interacting with the Salesforce developer team. 
When you say the Salesforce developer team, are you talking about our customers who are Salesforce developers? Internal engineering teams that are building the SDKs and the, and the interfaces. Yeah, I'd say pretty much every day, maybe not the same teams every day, but pretty much every day I'm in contact with one or more of those teams. Today I've, I've had conversations with the uh, mobile SDK team and I've had conversations with the uh, Apex development team. So it's as a developer evangelist, I have this sort of twofold role here. I'm talking and interfacing with our customers who are using and writing software. And so for that part of my job, I get to build cool things and then demo that to them and then, you know, educate people on what we do and what you can do on the platform. And then I also am integrating and talking to the various product teams. So, you know, Somebody a product team will launch something or have something in beta, and I'll be working with a client on how that beta works, and then I'll be able to go back to the product team and say, you know, this this uh, it works as you've documented it, but it's not terribly intuitive or user friendly. If we made this slight change, it might be easier or better. Unfortunately, I don't get I don't have any say in that. I can only pass on that feedback. I wish I had more of a say sometimes. I could say, no, no, we have to do this one. But, you know, I definitely get to pass on that feedback on a, on a daily basis. Are there any ways in which the Salesforce platform has changed significantly in the last few years where the downstream effects of Salesforce changing has led to downstream effects in the APIs or the SDKs, the developer experience? How have things changed in the last few years? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we've got a number of things that have changed recently. Uh, I say recently in the past uh, three, four years, maybe even five years back. The two biggest ones that come to mind is we have a an entire Salesforce developer experience tooling change, collectively referred to as DX. And the tooling change, what that allows you to do, I mean, it used to be that when you did Salesforce development, everything was based around the Salesforce org in which you were developing. And so you would have your production org for your company, but you would also have a couple sandboxes or maybe some developer edition orgs that were connected. And you would do the work in those developer edition orgs or the sandboxes, and then you would promote your changes from the developer edition or the sandbox to production. And there are a number of reasons why that is not a great experience. Uh, the biggest one being that if you have multiple developers on your team, it's hard to work on the same code base if you are having in a situation where you could step on each other and overwrite other people's changes. And so having larger teams work on the same code base becomes difficult because you sort of silo the work based on who's modifying what files, etc. And so that can lead to several issues. And now with DX, we have the ability to do what we call source tracking. And so source tracking is your more traditional source-based development. So you can throw your code into Git or Perforce or SVN, whatever you know uh, version control system you're familiar with, and your data and your metadata is all described in files that can be source-tracked in that version control system. And we have the command line that goes along with that and is sort of the front end to this whole DX idea. And that command line gives you the ability to, you know, take data that you've checked out from Git, check, take that metadata and push it to an org. And along with DX comes scratch orgs. And scratch orgs are ephemeral. They last between one and 30 days and they automatically get deleted. And the idea here is you can 
take a branch of your code base. Say you want to create a new feature, you create a feature branch, you check that out, you create a scratch org, you push your existing code to that scratch org, and then you can start working on the data as it is. Because everything's source tracked, when you merge your feature branch back in, other people can pull that feature branch back into their feature branches, etc. And you can manage it and do CI and bigger teams much more effectively. So I think that's one of the ways in which it's really, really improved. I think we are still working on tweaking it and making it better, but I think that DX has made a huge improvement in that sort of quality of life of the Salesforce developer. The the ability to do source tracked rather than org tracked is, is big. The other one that's come about even more recently is something called Lightning Web Components. I mentioned them a little bit earlier. They are the idea that you have the ability to create a UI element in a web component and then reuse that UI throughout your org. And web com uh, Lightning Web Components come with a group of other things, for lack of a better way of putting it. They, they come in a bundle. So you have the idea that your Lightning Web Component also has access to the UI API, which is a, uh, a newer API for doing UI-based interactions. And you have the UI for, excuse me, the API for um, grabbing record data. And you have a whole suite of what we call base components that make it so much faster and easier to spin it up. You don't have to go and hard code all of the elements and logic of a button. You can just call lightning colon button or lightning dash button, I'm sorry. And so those two things here in the past five-ish years have really taken root and changed really fundamentally the way Salesforce developers can work. Now, that's not to say everyone's doing them. I know a lot of Salesforce developers who still do org-based development, but they have the ability to do that source-tracked development. Could you tell me more about the Lightning Web Components? Yeah, Lightning Web Components are an extension to the Web Components API. It used to be back a few years ago before Web Components were really a, a thing that any sort of UI framework had to handle not only all of the UI bits and pieces, but also had to figure out how to talk to the host and get data from you know, the, um, the backend services, etc. And when you talk about doing that in sort of the context of Salesforce or an enterprise software platform, you've got to worry about and handle security and who's got access to what and all that sort of jazz. And now with Lightning Web Components, what we've been able to do is to take proposed extensions to the, the actual Web Components standard and use them um, for think, for taking care of those, like communicating with the backend, et cetera. So on top of web components, uh, we have a few, what we call decorators. And those decorators handle things like just talking to the backend. So you can turn around and do an at wire call to a backend method. And that's how you can extract or save or you know insert data in the back end from within your Lightning Web component. We also have one that, another decorator we have that exposes a property within the JavaScript class that is the controller to the, to the HTML DOM. So we have the API decorator, and that allows you to, to say, you know, when you pass in a, a DOM parameter, you can give it a value there inside the HTML, and that'll be available to the JavaScript controller. And all this is based on open standards. So we've got the ES6 and above uh, standards going on. So you've got classes and imports, and you can import 
backend functions, which is how you can wire to them. Uh, you can also import other components, CSS, that sort of thing. And the Lightning Web Components have a, a really pleasant, I, I was really surprised as I was being on board with Lightning Web Components, I was really surprised at how pleasant they were to work with. And now I've got a history in Angular and uh, I know enough React to, to hurt myself. But when I was working with Lightning Web Components for the first time, I was really, really enjoying it. It's really quite a breeze and, and a joy to, to build out. They have a fairly intuitive syntax. And there's a couple, a couple of places where they didn't quite make sense to me immediately, especially around intercompetence component communication. But once I worked out those kinks, I, I, I really enjoy them. Are there integrations between Salesforce and Heroku that are worth discussing? Like Heroku, obviously, for, for those who don't know, is this acquisition uh, Salesforce made. One of my favorite hosting platforms, Heroku is amazing. At the time of the acquisition, it didn't make a whole lot of sense over time, I mean, it made a, a lot of sense in the sense that it was a great, great uh, asset, but the synergies between Heroku and Salesforce were sort of undetermined. I'm wondering if those synergies have, have matured over time. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So I want to expand a little bit about what Heroku is. Heroku is a platform as a service where you can write your code in pretty much any language. I say pretty much. I don't know that I've seen a COBOL pl a build pack for, for a Heroku, but you know, if you were working with you know PHP, Ruby, Python, I think there's even a C sharp or and a, an Elixir build pack, and your code, uh, you, you write your code for your application and you push it with using Git to Heroku, and Heroku will turn around and look at your build pack instructions, and then build out a fully functional, uh, they call it a slug, and that slug is then provides you the ability to, to execute your code in in the cloud there. So you end up having, it's great for web applications like Ruby on Rails. You can turn around and fire up a Ruby on Rails app in you know a minute and a half uh, from the time you push it to the time it's up and running. Heroku is one of my favorite web properties anywhere, I think. But the, the thing that makes Heroku interesting, especially now, is that we have a way for you to take your Salesforce data and expose that to your Heroku app and vice versa. And so we have this thing called uh, Heroku Connect. And when you are there in Salesforce, you can say, okay, I want to share these objects. And then Heroku Connect takes over and those are shared out to a Heroku Postgres database. So we give you the ability to say, I want to you know, sync these objects, these fields on these objects, and go. And it's not quite instantaneous, but it's, it's pretty quick. And what happens is that allows you to write code in any language and that you can run on Heroku and then have that interact with your Salesforce data. So if you are just getting started with Salesforce and you, your team doesn't know anything about Apex and they've never written anything but, let's say, Python, you turn around and go in there and set up Heroku Connect, and then interact with the Postgres database through Python, and the manipulations you make to the data inside the Postgres database will be mirrored back into Salesforce, and vice versa. Uh, so that, that sort of little logical bridge between the Salesforce data and your Heroku instance really means that you can write all sorts of very powerful integrations uh, without having to worry about how to handle record syncing and that sort of work. 
So there, there's so much you can do there. Uh, it's almost hard to come up with a good example because there's literally no bad examples. But when you're talking about using Heroku Connect, you can think about doing it in a number of ways. Let's say you've got a, a client-facing application on a mobile device, and you want to be able to, to set it up so that your mobile device users can create questions, can create cases, for instance, support cases. And one way to do that would be to set up a community and then you could build in your build the Salesforce community into your mobile app, etc. But if you don't want to deal with that UI or you don't want to deal with that SDK, what you can do is expose the ability for your users to write to that Postgres database in a way that then gets translated back securely and safely into the Salesforce database. Do you spend a lot of time building toy applications yourself just so you can familiarize yourself more and more with the platform? Toy applications. Yeah, I I tend to think of them as uh, more like proofs of concept. Uh, I just finished one a little while ago that helps, uh, that exports data from my phone's health kit application and then drops it into Salesforce so I can do some machine learning and some sort of visualizations of that data. Uh, I tend to, I'm a type 2 diabetic and I have a system that will grab my um, blood glucose every five minutes and that gets stored in HealthKit and so I wrote a little iOS app that then turns around and exports that into Salesforce as a way for me to go in there and start correlating what I eat with what effect it has on my blood sugar. Now, I I don't know that that's ever going to be a great uh, use case for the Salesforce platform at an enterprise level, Uh, but I I do know that, you know, I can demonstrate to developers how to do that remote integration with our SDK from an iOS app into a Salesforce org and then turn around and demonstrate what it looks like to do some lightweight machine learning. I say lightweight because machine learning is a net new area of interest for me. So I am, uh, you know, I'm experimenting with it, but my hope is to be able to say, you know, if I go into my phone app and I say, I'm going to go eat uh, pizza for lunch, that it could come back and tell me, well, your, your blood glucose is currently X. And if you eat two slices of pizza, it will probably be Y. Um, as giving me a way to sort of budget, for lack of a better way of putting it, my blood glucose. Tell me more about the opportunities for machine learning in the Salesforce platform. Yeah, so we have, they fall under the, the agus of Einstein. We've got a few Einstein offerings. We've got uh, some OCR ability, so you can upload an image and have it processed using Einstein to come back and give you the text or to identify uh, like it, it thinks this is probably a birthday, for instance. Um, the classic example that we've used is uh, like if you scanned a driver's license, it would be able to show you, we think this is the birth date, we think this is the picture of the person, we think this is their address, that sort of thing. And the use case there is actually, you know, if you're letting people or visitors into your building and it's a secure facility, being able to take a picture of their driver's license in order to, to figure out who's there is actually pretty useful. So we don't have to worry about typos with names and that sort of thing. We also have the ability to, uh, there's an Einstein setup for sort of identifying trends in your data. And I, I know that's uh, that's kind of the definition of machine learning, but I have to state it that generically because when you pass something into the Einstein prediction builder, you're actually saying, here's a mass of data and I want to you know look at it 
and know in this data set what it looks like for someone to for an opportunity to be more likely to be closed one or uh, to be closed lost and it can highlight and can learn some of those differences and then illustrate them to you we used to do einstein object detection that was a fun one i built one of those toy apps to try and determine given a series of of webcam images i took uh, at my back door i i demonstrated that i could identify fairly concretely which of my dogs was leaving the back door just as a way of like doing object detection and sort of color detection i could determine which dog was which yeah so machine learning you can do an awful lot with it but some of it you're going to have to train yourself but our sort of our low code offerings for for einstein our einstein prediction builder and doing things with einstein ocr how do you see the salesforce platform evolving in the near future wow okay evolving in the near future i think the things that people count on are going away we're not getting rid of lightning web components we're not getting rid of anything like that i think I think more and more people are going to be doing work with DX. And part of that is we've, we've announced that we've got this thing called Code Builder, which is sort of a next generation IDE running in your web browser. So you can log into your org, hit a button, and launch your, um, your IDE. And I think that's really going to change the way th- people interact and develop with Salesforce because that is... Uh, that is built on top of the presumption of, of DX. So I, I think that's a, a big one. I think Lightning Web Components are going to continue to evolve. They've only been out for a couple of years now, but I think they're going to continue to evolve in, in positive ways, especially in the sense of, of more and more base components, what we call base components, which are those, you know, here's a button, here's a table, that sort of work. Yeah, and I think the other big one is we announced at Dreamforce last year Salesforce Functions. This is a it's been compared to a lot of things, but it is a it is a runtime for writing functions as a service style applications. So you can write a function and then have it go do something and then uh, you return that data to you or not. One of the classic use cases I've seen is you know, you've got a sale going on in, in your Salesforce org and that sale is to a consumer. That consumer then turns around and receives a ticket to go to an event, for instance. And you can have the actual ticket generation process be written as a function that runs on demand and scales, so that you know, from nine uh, 9.05 to nine fifteen, when you just open up the sales for a new rock concert, you don't have to worry about scaling up and provisioning a bunch of VMs. These these will scale for you. So I think functions is also going to be pretty pretty important. I think it'll bring about a new way of of thinking about development and we've heard a lot about microservices and sort of the steps along the path to to functions but I, I don't know that um, a lot of Salesforce developers have really thought through the differences between writing it as a function versus writing it as something that happens on say Heroku or in a third party call out to a, a custom built system. Are there some specific frictions in the platform that you recognize today that you wish were a little smoother? I think my biggest friction uh, has always been the org based development. And which is why I think that source based development or source tracking is so important. I know we've got other 
friction points among our developer ecosystem. And a lot of developers seem to think that our, uh, we have what are called governor limits. Governor limits exist to help make sure that uh, a bad actor or a bug in someone's code can't use up all the system resources uh, for a particular, particular instance of Salesforce. Because we are multi-tenant, your code runs next to my code in the same sort of resource pool. And so governor limits help prevent your code from taking over all the resources at once. Be very generic about it. And I know a lot of developers find, especially new developers, find those to be frustrating. I found that they are actually, a, for me personally, I find that they're actually a, a way to help me write better code because you know, if I can't get something done within a governor limit, then I'm probably not doing it in a optimal or safe way. I actually don't find those developer limits to be terribly, terribly big friction point, but I knew, I do know that some do. Other friction points are uh, a lot of, we, we have made a lot of changes over the past four or five years to our tooling. And so there's sort of this consistent learning curve that has to keep going on as we as we make DX more feature rich, etc. But I, again, I don't know that that's a friction point. You mentioned the Salesforce, basically the app store in some detail. Tell me more, if I was to browse through that app store, what kind of apps would I see? So you generally find apps that would help enterprise businesses be more efficient or apps that meet a certain feature set that Salesforce doesn't naturally provide. So for instance, one of my favorite apps on the App Store deals with helping organize tasks and task lists and making sure that there's a a nice consistent UI for making sure these tasks are done. You might also look in there and find and that's sort of a make it more efficient sense. And you'll also find apps that, that give features or entire applications of suites of features that you don't find in Salesforce natively. So one of the one of the big examples of that is, a, is an app that lets you do sort of uh, content generation, content document generation um, with, you know, merging in field data from your Salesforce org to generate, say, a, a sales proposal document. And it's not just it's not just documents. You can do spreadsheets and that sort of thing. So that's a big one, a big area where you know you can do things like generate a PDF in Salesforce natively. But if you want to do your complex mail merges or that sort of work, looking at the App Store for an example of an app to do that is is a great uh, is a great way to save a lot of time and money to get that done sooner. You can also find there was an app for a little while. I'm not entirely sure if it's still there. There was an app for a little while that that helped you document your Salesforce org, which is great. So if you've got a large team, being able to help document and say, okay, this particular function of code is is used X, Y, and Z, and we can't touch it because of A, B, and C. So that was a great app too. I know there are entire companies built on top of Salesforce. Like we did an interview with People AI one time. What's the difference between people who build entire companies on top of Salesforce versus people who build like small apps on site on top of Salesforce? That's a good question. Um, I know some examples of both, and I think that the companies that build their entire application on top of Salesforce, they, they do so because Salesforce provides a unique platform that meets a lot of their goals out of the box. And so for them, it's, it's a faster to market. Type situation. I think the sort of 
ISVs can can sell their product in sort of a, a almost white labeled way. So they they're getting Salesforce licenses, but you're seeing only the the product that you purchased. And then the other way to do it is you write a package or an app for Salesforce that you turn around and people can install in their already existing org. And so those two things are that's the big def- distinction between those who their entire app is based on top of Salesforce. They tend to sell their app as sort of that white labeled Salesforce license. And then the other option is, you know, more generic ISVs who they may only write software for Salesforce, but it's a bit of software that runs inside Salesforce that has a, a number of use cases. So for instance, again, that um, that document generation platform, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you may have a need to do complex mail merges inside of it and to, to generate documents. The flip side of that is the sort of like their entire business model is based on it is a risk management company and they help generate plans for companies to survive hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters, continuity business plans. And they offer their product as sort of that, it, it runs in Salesforce, but it looks like the risk management company and it it works entirely based on that. Uh, so those are the two f- sides, two different ways of doing it. When you write an app that, that you know, you're gonna sort of white label, wh- what you're doing is you're, you're saying, you know, we've got a, a singular use case that we're going to solve for, not a more generic use case. So you've got a risk management plan app. And doesn't matter whether or not the customer of the risk management plan uses Salesforce or uses, you know, other ERP systems, other CRM products, other platforms, you can turn around and, and still use this risk management platform that runs inside the Salesforce platform. But if you've got that generic, I need to create documents, it doesn't matter where, what business you're in, whether it's risk management or billboard selling, you still need to be able to generate that PDF or that document and send it out. You mentioned some about the process of submitting something to the app store. And I'd like to know more about the security review process, what are the common security holes or security vulnerabilities that need to get cleared up? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. There are a lot, so I'm not going to be able to exhaustively talk about it. But the security review process goes through and looks for, in general, a couple of, couple of red flags. So one is make sure that it honors the best practices for security and data privacy. So imagine an app that comes in and they've, the app writers are you know, early on the learning curve for the Salesforce platform, but they, they get their app in there. And what it does is it goes and it makes a query, but it, it's, not, it's not honoring the user permissions. So people can run this query and it doesn't matter whether or not I can see a record as the end user, this app is still gonna show me that record. That would be a security issue that would have to be fixed before it could go into the app exchange. So we're, we're looking for, uh, and I say we, I'm not on that app exchange security review team. I've interacted with them. They have great respect for them. They are sharp as a crack, uh, sharp as a whip, but they're looking for mostly uh, security related things. Are you making authenticated callouts to a trustable third party service? 
does that third party service is that are, do you control that or is it something that you know might be hijacked and then we would have an issue with data coming back in so they're looking at all aspects of the security of the code and the app that you've written there's all sorts of things related to that um, looking at choices in apex of uh, whether or not you're using with sharing or without sharing that sort of thing if there's someone out there that is just getting started and wants to figure out how to build on Salesforce, what would you recommend to them to get started? So we have a thing called Trailhead. Trailhead is the fun way to learn Salesforce. And you can go to trailhead.salesforce.com and there you can learn, I'm not going to say everything, but you can learn pretty much everything about software development on the Salesforce platform. You'll also find information on how to use Salesforce uh, if you are, say, a new employee at a company that uses Salesforce. But uh, there's a, a developer trail there, and that developer trail will walk you through with uh, a few modules or uh, projects on how to get started with uh, developing for Salesforce and whether that's you know using Flow or Process Builder, whether that's writing Apex code or triggers. There are modules for all of those things there on Trailhead. They're generally not terribly long. They generally sit down and do a badge over lunch. Some of them take longer, of course. Some of them are super short, but in general, you can sit down and do one or two over lunch. And then when you get done with that, the thing that's interesting about Trailhead is because it's inside of an org and you're doing work inside of an org, we can actually use our own APIs to log into that org and check your work. So if you are going to do a badge on writing flows and we're going to tell you and walk you through how to build a flow that does X, Y, and Z, at the end of that, we can check to make sure you have a flow that is named what we told you to name it that does X, Y, and Z. And so you end up when you, you've done these badges, you've, you've done more than just, you know, sat down and read something and answered a quiz. Now, some of our badges just have quizzes, but a lot of the developer ones also have what we call hands on challenges. And those hands on challenges are checked in the background to make sure that you've done it right. So there's it's not just a, I read something and I think I understand it. It's a I've read something and then I did it and I know I did it correctly because they checked my work. And so that's a that's a huge way of learning the Salesforce uh, ecosystem. Now, you can sit down and start doing that for free right now, and just sit down and log in and start taking those those badges on the trails. And you can get plugged into the ecosystem by looking at the blog, developer.salesforce.com/blog. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of ways, and in some degree, it's sort of overwhelming the number of ways you can start getting plugged in. So I recommend going to Trailhead. And then if you want to do some development work, look at the developer badges, look at the developer trail and start work that way. What else would you like to add about the Salesforce platform and the developer ecosystem on top of it? Salesforce is a a great great platform and a great ecosystem to have a career in. I, I really believe that. I have friends of mine who I went to college with who are, you know, game developers, who are, you know, developers in offer mobile platforms. And to some degree, the, the work-life balance we have between them is, is radically different. My friend who's a game developer works crazy hours. And, you know, my Salesforce developer friends, they tend to work business hours. Salesforce is an enterprise business platform, and so that, that gives you a, a sense of, of 
you know, what kind of work you would be doing, which means that you don't have to necessarily worry about, am I going to have to, you know, be up till four in the morning uh, for three weeks to meet a deadline? That's not to say it doesn't happen, but I think it's less likely to put it that way. It's a great ecosystem. We've got, I've, one of the things that it's really struck me about the ecosystem for as long as I've been in in it is the, the friendliness and willingness to help. So I know there are opportunities for people to ask questions all over the internet and then you often get a wide range of answers what i don't typically get in the salesforce ecosystem is those answers that are are like that's a dumb question or haven't you read the instructions i generally the response from the ecosystem that i've experienced has generally been well we're going to assume you've read the instructions but something didn't quite make sense so let's walk through it together and it's just been a much more welcoming and friendly environment I understand not everyone has that experience, but that's been my experience. And I think, again, yeah, come on over. We've got got milk and cookies. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great being here.